Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining me today on Michigan Minds. But before we get started, could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? My name is April Zioli, and I recently joined the University of Michigan Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention as part of the inaugural cohort of firearm injury prevention researchers. My faculty home is in the Department of Health Management and Policy in the School of Public Health. And my research focuses on legal restrictions for firearms for high-risk groups, such as domestic violence abusers, and the implementation of those firearm restriction laws. Thank you so much for sharing that, and welcome to the University of Michigan. As you mentioned, your research focuses on bringing together the study of public health, criminology, and criminal justice, but more specifically focusing on the prevention of firearm violence, intimate partner violence, and homicide through the use of policy and law. Could you please share a little bit more about your research? Yeah, firearm restrictions are put in place by the criminal justice system. So while I come at the issue of intimate partner homicide and gun violence and intimate partner violence from the perspective of a public health researcher, I have to acknowledge that it's the criminal justice system that is on the ground, you know, in implementing these firearm restrictions, investigating cases of intimate partner violence, you know, they're, they're the ones doing the work. So to effectively um, study this issue, to effectively prevent this issue, prevent intimate partner homicide, criminology and criminal justice have to be integrated with public health. Thank you so much for sharing more about your research. As October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I would like to focus on your work with the legal restrictions on domestic violence abusers and intimate partner violence. Could you please share insight or a broad overview of what these areas are and why they're important aspects of firearm injury prevention? Well, about 56, 57% right now of intimate partner homicides are committed with firearms. So it is the most common weapon used in intimate partner homicide. And we know that intimate partner violence often involves non-fatal uses of guns. So about 90, 90 non-fatal gun uses occur every day in domestic violence events. And that's really quite a lot. So I seek to determine how we can prevent those uses in intimate partner violence and you know, particularly in intimate partner homicides. And there are a couple of laws that are in place at the federal level and also in place in many states that seek to restrict domestic abusers from having guns. The first one is a restriction on certain people who are under domestic violence restraining orders. And the second one is a restriction on people who have been convicted of domestic violence misdemeanor crimes. And you know, my research study those, and we can talk about that, um, but I look at those to find out, you know, do these laws 
work? Are they effective in reducing intimate partner homicide and, and gun-involved intimate partner violence? Thank you so much for sharing that. And you mentioned that some of your most recent work focuses on domestic violence restraining orders and firearm restrictions. From this research, what are some of the key findings and how are your findings creating change in this area? What we've found is that those state level laws that say that if someone is under a certain domestic violence restraining order, they can't have a gun. Those laws are associated with reductions in intimate partner homicide. And again, you know, this is across states that have these laws. Not all states have these laws. We've also found that how the law is worded, you know, what the law contains is important. An example of that is that the federal law and the laws of some states only cover certain relationships. So they only cover current or former spouses, people who lived together, and people who had a child together. That leaves dating partners. Now, dating partners make up the majority of people who commit intimate partner homicide right now. And it is that way for demographic reasons. We get married at a much later age than we used to in the United States. And so we're exposed to our dating partners for a lot longer than we used to be. But as I said, the federal law in many states don't cover dating partners in their firearm restrictions. Some states do cover dating partners. And the states that do cover dating partners see a reduction in intimate partner homicide, whereas those that don't cover dating partners don't see a measurable reduction in intimate partner homicide. So it looks like covering dating partners is important. Thank you for sharing that insight. And while your research does focus on many different aspects of intimate partner violence, one part of this research focuses on the missed intervention opportunities. Could you please elaborate on what this means? Many areas of firearm violence prevention, from mass shootings to domestic violence to community violence, you have opportunities for prevention before these violent events occur. And if we know what those events are, if we have a sense of what's happening that we missed, what didn't we do that could have stopped it, then we can put measures in place to hopefully prevent more violent acts. For example, right now I'm studying domestic violence restraining order firearm restrictions. Now, even in states that have these laws, they're not being implemented in every single community. So I'm studying people who are petitioning for these restraining orders and following them to find out at what stage did this stop being implemented or was it implemented? So if someone got that firearm restriction, did their abuser keep a gun even though they're now uh, restricted from having, having a gun? Or did law enforcement go to their home and retrieve the gun? We think, and what we're hearing from communities, is that often nobody's making sure that these people don't have guns anymore, and so they, they keep them. And that provides more opportunities for violence. So if we just worked to implement these, we might prevent more violence. Another 
example of a missed opportunity is that some of these intimate partner homicide perpetrators have really quite extensive criminal histories. Uh, and if we were able to better prevent them from accessing a gun, for example, if they already have a felony conviction, they're not allowed to have a gun. But what we're seeing is that many of these people get illegal guns and then are able to commit intimate partner homicide. So we need to look at those stages in which they get the illegal guns and find out how to prevent that. Thank you for sharing that insight. And as you continue to move forward with your research, how do you hope policies will continue to change to better protect survivors of intimate partner violence and homicide? I hope that policymakers look at the science. I hope they look at the research, weigh the research evidence with all of its you know, benefits, with all of its limitations, and really pay attention to what the science suggests saves lives. Dating partners is one example. You know, my research suggests that covering dating partners under domestic violence restraining order firearm restriction saves lives. So states that don't have that in their law should consider adding that to their law. Now, not a lot of other studies have looked at that yet. And you know, soon other studies probably will, and we'll get more evidence on whether this is effective. But really following the science is what people should do when they wish to reduce gun violence, gun homicide, other types of homicide, because the science will tell us what works and what doesn't. Absolutely, thank you for sharing that insight. And what is one takeaway that you hope everyone listening will have from the information that you've shared with us today? Well, I didn't say it explicitly, but I really hope that people, you know, understand that we can prevent, we can prevent intimate partner homicide. There are laws on the books in many places that research has found is associated or are associated with reductions in homicide, with reductions in intimate partner homicide. These are not unsolvable problems. We know how to reduce these crimes, homicides and intimate partner homicides. We have to implement the laws better because we're certainly not implementing them as well as we could be. And then hopefully we'll see more reductions. But again, I want that message to be firearm violence is preventable. Thank you for sharing that. And as we wrap up today, is there anything else that you would like to share? Thank you for the opportunity to share information about firearm injury prevention, about my work on domestic violence homicide and domestic violence, especially during October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity. And I encourage listeners to visit the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention's website to see the scope of what UM researchers are doing in this area and how you can get involved. And that website is https colon slash slash, everybody knows this part, firearminjury.umich.edu. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your information today. And thank you again for joining us on Michigan Minds. It was really great speaking with you today. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.